Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, it's our tell show for Tuesday, January the 18th. The year of our Lord 2022 is rolling along. A frigid one in a lot of the country, but wherever you and yours are, we hope you're well. We hope you're warm. We hope things are going good for you. Thank you so much for taking a little time to join us today on Herd Tell. Lots of stuff to cover. A couple things we want to get to. Uh, We're going to talk about the Wagers over in China. We've covered that story extensively, but now we have a rather influential uh, billionaire here in the States who don't think it's any big deal worthy of his time. We're going to address that. Uh, Speaking of time, we're going to talk about time. A cool story sent in by one of you listeners about time, a little farcical take on that. We're going to talk about that. Also, we got a good story to end the day involving Tom Brady and a young fan from earlier in the year. A, A moment that went viral has a cool little update We will get to that story as well. But first, we want to cover uh, a really awful story. You probably heard tell about this uh, hostage situation in Texas. Uh, It was resolved, thankfully, with only the gunman and the terrorist that was meaning to do harm here dead. Uh, Everybody else survived. There was uh, reports of this really, really brave rabbi who uh, at one point, according to some reports, actually threw a chair at the guy so him and two other hostages could get away. Uh, The FBI's elite hostage rescue team went in and killed him. Uh, Good. One less bad guy on the planet. Uh, But we need to deal with, besides uh, the fact that this was a terrorist attack, we need to deal with why this individual is motivated because it goes to something that we don't talk about a lot more. Uh, We've been kind of numb since 9-11. It's been over 20 years now. Uh, We've gotten numb to the fact that there are terrorists that want to do really bad harm to us. Um, first of all, let's just deal with some abject fact here. This man, uh, this suspect Malik Fasayo Akram, uh, maybe Akram, I've heard it pronounced some places. Uh, he did this deliberately. He traveled from Britain. He traveled to Texas. He sought out a synagogue and let's all be adults here. You don't trip and fall on a synagogue. Uh, he purposely sought out a synagogue. He purposely targeted Jews here. Uh, and he wanted, uh, according to his demands before the FBI hostage rescue team neutralized him, his demands was that he wanted Aifa Siddiqui to be released from prison. Now, why is that name important? Our friends over at Mediaite, our friend Sarah Rumpf, who I strongly recommend you follow, she does great work. Uh, we're actually hoping to get her on the show soon we want to do that back beginning of the year but she was moving and some other things so hopefully we'll get her on soon but she gives us some important background over at mediaite 
uh, media.com quoting from Sarah Rump's part, uh, Preet Bahara, you may know him. He's been all over media. He has his own podcast. That's pretty good too. A CNN legal analyst and a former U S attorney for the Southern district in New York shared details of the prosecution of Aifa Siddiqui with CNN newsroom host, Jim Acosta in the 2010 case was back in the headlines on Saturday after Malik Fasil Akrim, a 44-year-old British citizen, took four people hostage to the synagogue in Colleyville, Texas. After releasing one hostage in the afternoon, Akram was killed shortly after the 9 p.m. Central Time during a standoff with the hostage rescue team. The remaining three hostages escaped unharmed before he did. Before he died, Akram repeatedly referenced Siddiqui's case and demanded her release from federal prison, Bahara, had led the prosecution team for the criminal case against Siddiqui, who is currently serving an 86-year sentence at a federal prison in Texas. Siddiqui has become, quote, an icon among Islamic terrorists, Acosta said, before turning to Bahara to share his recollections on the case. Siddiqui had been in prison for over 12 years, Bahara said. He described her as, quote, a highly educated, extremely smart person who became a neuroscientist, educated at MIT, got her PhD at Brandeis University, and who had been radicalized after 9-11. Authorities started looking for her in the mid-2000s, he said, suspecting her of having developed terrorist ties and found her in Afghanistan, as Bahara described. And this is a quote from an earlier piece. She was found in Afghanistan in 2008, and on her person or in her bag on her person were found, among other things, two pounds of sodium cyanide, bomb-making plans, and what looked like an apparent list of targets, including Grand Central Station in New York City and the Statue of Liberty. And she was taken in question in a building in a small town in Afghanistan while she was on the second floor. Members of the 101st Airborne of the United States military showed up to join in the questioning. And in that moment, there was an unexplained and in a moment that was unexpected by the folks who were doing the questioning, she took a firearm, an M4, from one of the people who was in the room, one of the military people in the room, and she began firing at everyone in the room. Luckily, it didn't hit anybody. While she was firing, she was stating anti-American sentiments like, I want to kill as many effing, we're going to bleep this, effing Americans as I can. She was taken into custody, and after being shot and taken care of medically, she was then sent to New York for prosecution. Siddiqui's trial took place in January 2010, and the court had to take what Bahara called a highly unusual step of having her watch much of her own trial via a live feed from her prison cell because she kept making outbursts in court, anti-Semitic comments, and other threatening comments. She was convicted and got a very significant sentence, Bahara said, because of the nature of her crime, the terrorism enhancement, and the discharge of the weapon, plus her own behavior before, during, and after. Her sentence had made her a martyr in the eyes of the people who are anti-American and jihadist, Bahara said, specifically because of the uniqueness of her being a woman and highly educated, and there were those who used it as an excuse for extreme acts of violence like had been seen at the synagogue in Texas to show solidarity with her and try to get her released. Bahara goes on to detail other things. You can read it in the piece. But moral of the story, terrorism is still out there, even though we've kind of not paid attention to it in America. We're kind of lulled to sleep on it. But a man over in England was motivated by somebody most of us have never heard about to come over here and commit violence. She was arrested and detained because she wanted to kill Americans, and she continued throughout the process of her attacks and through her trial to spout anti-Semitic stuff. So no, it wasn't accidental that this terrorist showed up at a synagogue to demand her release. It just goes to show that we can never let our guard down. 
this name, this woman who you probably never heard of before this was inspiring somebody who tried to come over here and commit an awful act of violence. Thankfully, the only person that died here was him, but we've seen other attacks on synagogues and we've seen other terrorist attacks on other targets that have gone far worse. And I hate to say it, but it's a matter of time until one of these crazy makers and terrorists succeed at hurting people. We should never let our guard down. No matter what we get wrapped up in talking culture and politics, there's people in the world that want to do us harm. And they want to do us harm for reasons that we don't always pay attention to. But they mean it, and they're coming. And we should be vigilant. We've all seen that are old enough to remember things like 9-11. What happens when we let our guard down? when our government doesn't take care of business and when really bad people want to do us harm and try to and succeed. God help us when the next one comes, if we are not prepared. Thankfully, this one was stopped. Thankfully, Siddiqui is in prison for the rest of her natural life and thankful for the law enforcement folks that stopped the synagogue, including the brave rabbi who made this not be a tragedy. But we must be vigilant. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. You know, we've covered uh, issues involving China and we've talked about the Wager people, the uh, Muslim minority uh, that is being oppressed, brutally oppressed in communist controlled China. Uh, we've covered it quite a bit on this show. We keep mentioning it because it's one of the great human rights violations in the world going on right now. The Communist Chinese Party does not want us to talk about it, which is why we are going to, because those of us that have freedom of speech and platforms to do shows should speak out when we find evil wherever we find it. We find it there, and whether they like it or not, we're going to talk about it. Well, one of the minority owners, 10% owners of the Golden State Warriors, was on a podcast and got himself in this little bit of trouble for some offhanded comments he made about the Wager people uh, on this podcast. This is from KPIX. That's the CBS affiliate out in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, quote, the Golden State Warriors issued a statement Monday distancing themselves from the controversial comments made by minority owner Kamath Paliapatia concerning the ongoing struggle of the Muslim Wagers in China. On his podcast, Paliapatia, a venture capitalist who owns 10% of the Warriors, uh, commented on a bill President Joe Biden signed in December that bans imports from the Zhejiang region of China unless there is proof they were not made by forced labor. China has been accused of detaining more than a million Turkic Muslim Uyghurs in the region as part of a campaign to wipe out their traditional culture, language, and beliefs. Let's be honest, nobody cares. This is a direct quote now from Paliapatia. Let's be honest, nobody cares about what's happening to the Wagers, Paliapatia said in a conversation with co-host Jason Calacanis. You bring it up because you really care, and I think that's nice that you care. The rest of us don't care. I'm telling you a hard, ugly truth of all the things I care about. It is below my line, end quote. Paliapatia's comments have triggered a wave of harsh criticism on social media, including from NBA standout Enos Cantor Freedom, who added freedom to his name after becoming a U.S. citizen. Last year, Cantor Freedom has been critical of the human rights policy of governments in his native Turkey for years. Turkey's actually trying to uh, get him handled in all sorts of very real and very uh, unsafe ways for him. But that's another story for another day. Quote, when the NBA says we stand for justice, don't forget there are those who sell their souls for money and businesses like Kamath, the owner of the Warriors, who made these comments. That's his Twitter handle, who says nobody cares about what's happening to the Wagers. 
When genocide happens, it is people like this that let it happen. He tweeted on Monday, the Warriors issued a statement that read, quote, as a limited investor who has no day-to-day operating functions with the Warriors, Mr. Paliapatia does not speak on behalf of our franchise, and his views certainly does not reflect those of our, of our organization. Now, Paliapatia also issued a statement uh, saying that these matters should be more nuanced, and he should have said more. There was a lot of wordy word, and frankly, I was not impressed with his statement because he also made equivalences to the United States and some of our issues with communist-controlled China. There is no equivalence comparing the two. We have our flaws, we have our issues, but we don't have a million Wagers in concentration camps trying to stamp out their culture, language, and identities because it doesn't fit in with the CCP's view that everybody should be under their foot. Um, We're not going to stop talking about these issues. The fact that a billionaire who also has foundations and has things on his social media about trying to do good in the world can't seem to be bothered with it, uh, speaks very poorly of him. Hopefully he changes his mind and decides to maybe speak out, but I doubt he will because among other reasons, we all understand, let's be adults here, China means money. China means influence. China is important if you're on the global stage because that's a huge market for folks. And we already saw the NBA earlier last year is going to be want to want to speak out against it because it would be hard on their business. We don't have those business ties, and even if we did, we would say it anyway. What China is doing to the Wager people is wrong. It is a human rights violation. It is a crime against humanity, and people ought to say so. And their economic might should not buy silence from anybody, whether it's a billionaire investor in a basketball team or little old me or little old you on our social media. We're not going to be silent. What they're doing to the Wager Muslim population is wrong. And it should stop and it should end immediately. And we're not going to broad brush it. We're not going to soft pedal it. We're not going to be patted on the head and told it's not happening when it clearly is. The Communist Chinese Party is a wicked evil. It's one of the great evils in the world today. They oppress millions and millions of people, including the Wagers, including their own people, including their imperialistic reach into other countries now. They want to dominate the world because they think their system of oppression and brutality is the best way to go about things. And those of us with freedom ought to speak out against it. And we will, especially here on Hertel. More Hertel right after this. Ah, it's Hertel. Uh, one of our regulars uh, when we go to economic type issues, and he is an economist, not a communist, as my daughter misheard me introducing him earlier when I said economist. Uh, Jericho Hill, how are you, sir? I'm doing very good today. How doing are you doing, Andrew? Taking a sip of his designer beer with his pinky up because he's one of them DC elitist type people. It's uh, literally a harpoon that you have after beer league softball <laughs> it is by far not a fancy beer <laughs> duly noted we kid we kid those that we love now jericho's great people we love talking economic issues with him i, I want to start with some big picture stuff and then we'll talk a little bit because i want to get into housing with you which is something you're kind of specializing in lately but um i i see a trend on social media and even the news media even the talking heads and economists they seem to only talk to the general public about economics using counterfactuals with whatever the headline of the moment is. And I know economics is this really deep thing. You were even tweeting about this the other day, I think. 
I, I don't know that we're doing this in a really healthy manner because I understand it's too big of a subject for Twitter or Facebook posts or even an eight or nine minute interview. I've, I've had you on for a whole hour and we barely scratched the surface of certain things. But this seems like a really bad way to try to communicate about something that's multi-layered, multifaceted, and changes five minutes after you try to explain what's going on right this minute because it's already changed again, isn't it? So, I mean, I get the hint here that you're talking about the great inflation debate of this past week and, and the, the shocking headline number of 7% year-over-year growth in inflation. And Among other things, yeah. You know, but, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rip on that for a moment because... You know, yeah, this that's a high number for year-over-year inflation. Anybody that says that's not a high number, I don't know what they're doing. But one of the things that we seem to lack in the conversation is we don't think about what would have happened if we didn't have the fiscal support that we put into place in 2020 and 2021. You know, for instance, you might think of it as a choice between do we have higher than normal inflation or do we have higher than normal unemployment? And what I think we saw was that policy policymakers remembered the mistakes of the Great Recession, where our policy response was um, not enough uh, in hindsight, which led to a lot of people being unemployed for a lot longer than they really needed to be. And long-term unemployment is a really bad thing. I mean, not just for the people that are unemployed, it's a bad thing for the economy. It's absolutely awful to be a long-term unemployed person when you want to work. You lose skills, you lose connections, you know. And so this time around with, with the COVID, what we saw was policymakers say, we're going to, um, I mean, they didn't say this explicitly, they maybe they should have been more clear, but they said, we're going to do massive fiscal stimulus this time around so that we're going to be able to get back to you know, low unemployment, super fast. And we are right now under 4% unemployment by the standard unemployment metric that everybody cites, you know, at least of among economists. Um, and that, that's incredible two years into a pandemic, but it comes at a cost. And so like, we don't have a conversation about like, we chose policy A to avoid outcome B, but that came with a cost. But if we had gone with the, if we had done, if we hadn't done enough, we might be still having a conversation where we might have a conversation right now, Andrew, where unemployment is 9%, 10%, you know, but inflation is 2%. And, and I would just say the talking heads that are out there would be blaming everything on high unemployment and saying that's bad and just not worrying about the inflation. It seems a little disingenuous as far as I'm concerned. Like we had a policy choice to make, you know, and this is where we made it. And I, I wish that we talked about trade-offs because nothing's, nothing's clean, you know, um, and I sympathize with folks that are being hit with inflation. As someone who doesn't buy used cars, right? I'm, I'm a higher income earner, so I'm, I'm very unlikely to be buying a used car compared to lower income workers. I sympathize. I'm like, well, the higher income folks maybe aren't seeing the inflation that some of the lower income folks are seeing, right? And we should be cognizant of that, but maybe we're in a DC bubble where we don't really think about that. Right. He's Jericho Hill, DC bubble dweller, but he talks to us uh, common folk in a way that we can understand and we appreciate him for it. I want to uh, always remember that I grew up in, 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 uh, in South Georgia. You know, I got to remember my roots. In South Georgia, which is a land of celebration as of late, but let's not rehash that horrible day. Hey, uh, oh no, I, I do want to rehash that because apparently <laughs> the last play when Georgia uh, won the national go. championship was on a third down and 28 yards. So I conclusively determined that the curse of Atlanta sports is now over. 
And just because he spoke it into existence, of course, it will not. I will remind you that the Atlanta Falcons are still a thing. Nevertheless, we will press on. Um, one of the things you just mentioned there before we got derailed into the land of Georgia college football, um, you talked about the unemployment rate. We, we have really long, well-established metrics for unemployment, the U3, uh, table A15. Everybody knows, you know, certain every quarter we've got to pull that out, go through it. We've already talked about with you, but it bears to mention here the fact that you have so many people retiring early, early retirees. You had people drop out of the workforce for COVID mm-hmm. because a lot of those part time or seasonal workers could not do that because of the schools being closed or uh, other situations. Is some of this just we don't have great metrics for what's actually happening in the economy right now because some of this stuff has never happened before. So they're not really sure how to measure it. And that's where you get a discrepancy like low unemployment, but a labor shortage at the same time. Well, actually, I was reading something really interesting about the labor shortage. Because of um, immigration has slowed down dramatically uh, during a time, uh, during a global camp- pandemic, quite understandably so, um, some of the labor, sh- actually a good, a good portion of that labor shortage is because we don't have uh, migrant labor, so to speak, right? Uh, folks coming into the country to, to do work. We're actually missing about, if I remember correctly, it was about 2 million uh, folks who would have migrated into the U.S. Uh, and turned into part of our labor force. So that could be part of the labor shortage right there. But in general, your, your point is well taken. And I think that it's something that, that I try to remind myself. When you have a fast-moving crisis, which clearly this COVID pandemic is, I and mean, even two years after, in economics, two years is a blink of an eye, right? Um, our, our, our ability to look at things is compromised. We don't have a lot of real-time data. Like we, we go out to the world and we do surveys. Those surveys take time to complete. They take time to come back. They take time to analyze and get the numbers out, right? That's why you often see in the jobs reports, they'll say, we, made, we had 200,000 more jobs this year. But by the way, Last month, we said we had 150,000, but it was actually 250,000 or it was 50,000. Oops, you know, we waited for more data. So I, if we're not cognizant that our ability to understand what's going on is somewhat compromised in a fast-moving crisis, like I think we are kidding ourselves about data reliability. What is a good way to know when we're getting bad uh, information, though, for a lay person? Because, you know, the, we our number our eyes just kind of roll when they start throwing away like the U3 numbers on graphic. It just doesn't make any sense to us because most people don't know what it is and they don't really care. They just want to know, is it good or is it bad? Um, and we know every economic report that comes out on network news is always unexpectedly, which we've kind of turned into a joke. When can folks know? Because they intuitively know, like something with the unemployment rate and the labor shortage, they intuitively know that that doesn't make sense, even if they don't fully understand. They're just like, well, wait, that doesn't make sense. Or they understand when COVID happens and, and there's uh, s- supply chain issues, that makes sense to them in a practical way. Is there a good way to get normal information to normal people that don't need you know, a degree in mathematics and microeconomics to kind of sort through this? Because another part of this is the public may not be reacting to what's actually happening economically because they just don't have the right information. So I think, it's, I think again, another good point from Andrew. Now, what I would say here is there's a joke about economists, right? You, on the one hand, this is happening, but on the other, something else, right? I think if you're listening to, to econ reporters and economists and they're not in a time of crisis, hedging and saying, you know, yes, we're seeing this, but this could also be the case because we are in a time of much uncertainty. 
you know, maybe that's a quality signal, right? I would much rather hear from economists um, and reporters who say, well, this is what we're seeing, but there are these other things that are out there that we don't know about yet. And I'd have a lot more confidence hearing something like that, that well, at least what's being reported to me is being reported in good faith and, and, is, and is as accurate as, as they can make it, right? So like with the inflation unemployment earlier, I tried to say, look, there was a trade-off. I, I don't know where the median America, you know, you know, lies on the on that trade-off with it exists. I just think we should have communicated that a bit better to folks, you know, and be cognizant of that when we're thinking about what could be happening. We, I know commentators like me who just do the po- political side of it, um, not to pick on them, but they're in the chair. That's how it works. Uh, President Biden and the Democratic leadership, what would you rate their messaging on the economy right now? Uh, a, B, C, D, F. Everybody's talking about their messaging is inconsistent and not great. But you as the economist, how's it been coming off to you? Solid C. Solid C. Do explain, sir. So I, I feel like this is one of those issues where like they should be taking a victory lap in the sense that, you know, unemployment got down really low, really fast. And yeah, some of that is people leaving the labor force, you know, permanently retirees, as you mentioned earlier, retirees and whatnot. But, but generally speaking, I don't think when this crisis started that um, the median economic forecast had unemployment getting back down to 4% the way we measure it just this early on. And I think that is deserving of a victory lap for the administration, but they, they also seem to sort of argue the technical correct and not sort of what feels right to people and not think about the fact that there are distributional differences in what's going on. I think, you know, the folks that, you know, might have been, you know, pushing, you know, yes, inflation is transitory. And I still myself personally do believe inflation is transitory, but the rhetoric of inflation is transitory means I ah, don't worry about it. It's not really going to be a thing in a year or two, but Again, we go back to that family who's who's making $35,000 a year who still has to go to work right in person because their job doesn't offer telework like some of those fancy pants people in DC. Uh, and their car broke down and they got to get a new car, but uh, you know, you a car, but you know, nobody's selling their cars, so used car prices shot up. So now they got to pay a lot more money for a new uh, for a used car. You know, that that's a real issue. And, you know, I, I think that maybe some more humility and some more getting outside the D.C. bubble might have been a good strategy for, for the Biden administration. So that's why I rate them a C. Like, honestly, like we've continued some policies under the Trump administration to come out of the COVID pandemic and, and a reasonably healthy for the economy matter. We still have supply chain issues that we hope that will resolve themselves. And I'm confident they will. Um, as we deal with the global, as the global pandemic sort of unwinds, I'm hoping that Omicron is the last gasp until this COVID becomes like flu 2.0. Um, that would be really nice. Um, and we might be beyond this by the end of 2022. But, you know, let's let's not pretend that there's not a significant slice of the population that's hurting. Yeah, we're talking to Jericho Hill. We're going to talk about some of those things like the telework change in the economy. We're also going to get into a little bit of housing, which is kind of his area of focus outside of his day-to-day economic jobs. We're going to get into all that with him on Hertel right after this. Uh, it's Hertel Show talking to our buddy Jericho Hill. He's an economist. Uh, he's one of them D.C. dweller people, uh, but he's one of the good ones. We like to get his perspective on things. You were talking about uh, telework just a minute ago. 
you mentioned also 2008, 2009, the Great Recession. That's kind of the last big economic crisis people will have fresh in their minds. But that was a crisis that was brought on mostly by housing, uh, bad loans, predatory lending, these sorts of things. This crisis is more of uh, supply side stuff that's going on with the inflation and such like that. One of the big differences, though, is we've got this thing called telework now. So when you dump people out of the economy or out of the workforce, I should say not the economy, they're not actually leaving the economy. They're just moving the workforce to home. That has massive, massive implications to the wider economy, though, when you have people just working from home, though, don't you? Yeah. For instance, you know, I've got a family member who was uh, working for an IT firm out West. And after COVID, that that firm decided they're going to go fully remote. And so he moved from uh, out West all the way down to to Florida, Um, you know, completely up, 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 up and move basically to farmland in Florida where he can still do his job, you know? And so that allows, I think, you know, there, there's this, there's this new thing going on where certain white collar jobs, because for a lot of service sector and retail work that, that, that still takes place in person. So that's, that's not subject to telework, but for, for some white collar jobs, um, a significant swath, I think we're looking at the ability of those white collar workers to sort of change where they where they live um, and still work for a company. So it might be that companies decide um, we're cool with you if you want to live within the country, but you know, like you can't go like, you can't be a U.S., you can't work for a U.S. firm and work in, in Japan maybe, but, or we want you to, to stay working in the city or our headquarters is in Kansas City, but you know, now you don't have to worry about a commute. So if you want to live 50 miles away from Kansas City and live out in the country, go, go for it. Like that's not a problem. And, And I think that has, like, if we think about that, that has, you know, obviously implications for the distribution of white collar workers in this country, their geographic location that will play into what housing prices are. Look, the city that had the highest year over year price increase in housing is Boise, Idaho. That was not Idahoans moving to Boise, Idaho. Those were Californians moving to Boise, Idaho, right? Uh, Because of remote work. Um, The other thing that I think we have to think about is, what does this do to the downtown workforce that was previously catering to the white collar workforce that now is more than likely working from home? What happens? Do these, do these office buildings that are now vacant get repurposed into condos and apartments for like 20 somethings that want to live in high amenity, great restaurants, clubs, you know, city life that you know, a lot of, a lot of people in their twenties want. Um, and, and maybe that helps the, that keeps the retail and the, and the restaurants, you know, moving or, does the activity of our service sector also have to shift over to where people are now working? I, I we're living. I, I don't know. We're we're obviously only two years into this, and we're only seeing little hints of it. Is the telework revolution from an economic standpoint? Uh, is it good? Is it bad? Or is it neutral? And by that I mean, if this is a trend that continues, where you have, I'm just going to pick a number here because nobody probably really knows the number, but let's say out of the workforce, you got five million people doing this, just hypothetically. That's a that's a if you have any kind of a, a big number like that moving, but if it becomes a sustained thing, a telework, is that going to be a good thing, a bad thing, or a neutral thing economically speaking? Well, I, I first want to speak to it uh, on a personal level. I think that if you give, if we have a situation where more people have a broader choice on where to live, right, and where to work, like to me, that choice has to be a good thing, right, for for the people, right. Um, 
you know, and obviously again, we, there are costs, right? What 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 happens to, to to folks that worked in jobs that were previously concentrated in the city center, so to speak, the restaurant workers, right? Um, now, you know, so so I think you know, I think telework overall, greater access to telework is probably, if you were to put a gun to my head, I would say it's probably a net positive for the economy, but that's an average. That's not the experience of everybody. Um, and so I would hope that as we sort of think about, I think we should be planning for a world in which um, where you work and where you live is somewhat decoupled, right? Uh, it could be decoupled in the sense that maybe, you know, I'm a DC, you know, I work for the federal government. Maybe I don't need to live right near DC. Maybe I can live out in Loudoun County or, you know, closer to the West Virginia border, a, a state near and dear, obviously to your heart, you know, because I want to live near the mountains and I don't have to worry about commuting, you know, that that could be, you know, that 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 could change the, you know, where where folks want to live, but you know, it, it could also mean, you know, that um, that, you know, maybe, you know, do do we connect the same way that we do, right? So some companies are responding to the telework by saying, hey, you can you can continue to telework. Uh, we're going to allow you to telework permanently, but you still have to live within like a certain radius of your assigned home office because we're still going to have meetings every few weeks. We want people to be in person. And we probably haven't reached the point of society where we're willing to make really important decisions virtually. Like I think there's still a value to, to, to actually seeing people in person, reading body language. It's probably why in-person poker is so much better than virtual poker. I don't know. I'm a lot better at virtual poker than I am in person, but that's another topic for another day. Um, another one of those indicators, like you were just talking about, though, is housing, of course. Uh, for most people, their house is the most expensive, biggest ticket item in their personal finances. We also know that housing is a huge economic indicator because uh, I forget the exact number, but I know if you build a house, it takes like 27 separate trades to build a house, this sort of thing. It's, it's always an economic number. But it's also one of them confusing things to folks because we keep hearing we have, you know, economic concerns, maybe not a full blown crisis yet, but a lot of people are worried about the economy. And yet the housing market is just going through the roof. It's crazy what's going on in the housing market right now. And then at the same time, people keep hearing about a housing shortage for lower income people. Here's another one of those things. Jericho Hill doesn't make a lot of sense to the normal person. Explain it to us. <laughs> So look, I'll try to explain it very simply, right? You mentioned the great financial crisis of 08, right? So if you look at how many homes we were building versus how many people, new people wanted to buy a home um, before 2008, we seem to be doing a pretty good job. Like housing supply and housing demand were meeting each other. That's a good thing. Post-crisis, we have had more housing demand than we've had housing supply increase. So, you know, even though I hate economics 101 as being used as a model to explain what's going on, I'm going to appeal to an econ 101 model. When demand keeps rising and supply isn't keeping up, prices are going to rise, right? And that's sort of irrespective of the interest rate environment or, or anything else. Like that, that's just what we see. Um, and indeed, you know, estimates of the national housing shortfall is 3 million, 5 million. I mean, you know, pick your number in between that. But uh, that's only been growing since 2008. So, so that that might help explain why we have a housing shortage. Like it's just we've we've stopped building. Um, and some reasons because of that is is one that that a lot of folks might might, might say is our zoning laws don't allow us to build the kind of housing that we really need to build. 
So what I mean by that is a lot of cities, not every city, but a lot of cities have zoning that basically says you can only build a single family house with this size of a lot, right? And that, that's all you can do. Um, there's a great example. If you look at some pictures of San Fran, you'll basically see there's a ton of single family exclusive zoning. And we wonder why prices in San Fran are astronomically high. You know, um, they simply can't build the housing they need. They can't build, you know, two or three houses on the same plot of land that they really need to do because people want to live there. Does the, the fact that we, we really don't have an ability to, you know, that, that's a, that's a, that's a local issue, right? The, and, and, and the local property owners have an incentive um, to keep zoning the way that it is. So we, we may not have the ability to, to build the types of homes that we really need to. In particular, the type of home that we sort of see as missing is, is what we call missing middle. Missing middle housing are your, your duplexes, your, your, your triplexes, your row homes. You know, homes with a yard, but still a little bit denser, not a big yard, you know. Um, we don't see those homes being built as much. Um, and that, that, that contributes to a lot. And those homes, obviously, by being smaller, are much more affordable. What we do see in a lot of cities are, are what we call ramblers, you know, one-story homes being bulldozed to build a McMansion because that's what the zoning allows them to do. And that property owners are responding saying, well, I can't build a duplex on my property. So I guess in order to maximize its value, I've got to build a McMansion. Do we want that? I, I, I certainly don't, but. Yeah, and that gets into uh, regulatory reform that is a whole nother topic for another day, which we will definitely get into with you. Uh, Jericho Hill joining us, good economic stuff, but you've got a little bit of a side project going. You've got a substack going with some numbers, yeah. just some raw data for folks. Uh, let folks know what's going on with that. Yeah, sure. So look, you know, I, I, I started this year, I wanted to, to sort of bring housing statistics to to a lot of folks. So I have a Substack. Apparently, all the kids have a Substack these days, so that's what we do. So it's it's JerichoHill.substack.com, and basically, what I do with the Substack is I just pull data and statistics from press releases and reports issued by the government, by private sector firms like Zillow or Redfin or CoreLogic. These are all housing related firms. Uh, and then I go into, I have one section on that that just, just, just gives you what the facts are. And then I go into, here's some research that just got sort of put out there in the last month that might be interesting. So like, for instance, you know, like I highlight a report from Redfin, you know, what they're looking at, you know, they're looking at, you know, reference looking at, at, at new listings. And it, they're, they're saying that the data that they're seeing says that sellers might be more motivated. So we might see an uptick in housing supply uh, being offered to homes on the market, which would sort of start to sort of tamper down that the sort of crazy house price rises that we've been seeing, you know, but, but to go back to a point, like the other reason why we're seeing house prices rise so much, um, the millennial generation, which we have to remind ourselves are not 20 year olds. These are like mid 30 year olds uh, are millennials. <laughs> Um, they're entering their prime home buying years and there's a lot more of them entering than there are boomers that are going to be, you know, going into, you know, assisted living facilities or dying off. And so that sort of extra demand is just going to, to keep housing costs sort of, it's a floor on housing, housing costs. So, so it's hard to see housing getting cheaper. It's hard to see a housing price debacle collapse happening in the very near future. 
And on that happy note of death and getting put into a home, <laughs> we thank Jericho Hill for his time. Uh, but that, that's, just the, that's just the reality of some of this stuff. You have generational change. You're going to have generational economic change to come along with it. Um, We're all going to uh, be there at some point, my friend. Uh, tell Some of us quicker than others, apparently. Um, but we appreciate that. I, I love stuff like that product, though, because one thing we do, we do this at Ordinary Times also, where uh, Jericho writes with us frequently. Hint, hint, hint. We're waiting. Uh, we, we like having Jericho's write, so writing, yes. but uh, that's something we do at Ordinary Times also. We love giving you just the raw data. It's something you really need to start doing in your information rotation. Uh, read those Supreme Court documents. Read those housing numbers. Read that stuff for yourself. Don't just take a talking head's word for it, right? Uh, Jericho Hill, appreciate everybody letting up folks know where your social media is because you're a fun Twitter follow, my friend. Yeah, so look, I, I'm on Twitter as Motoconomist. That's M-O-T-O-C-O-N-I. MIST, hopefully I spell that right, but most economist. Um, and also got a substack, the Jericho Hill, J-E-R-I-C-H-O-H-I-L-L, a great Stephen King reference. I hope you get it uh, on substack.com. And obviously I write on Ordinary Times as most economist, and I should have a piece out before the end of the week. So uh, as always, I appreciate Andrew having me around. I'm glad that he's feeling better. Um, uh, I look forward to more of these conversations in the future. Uh, Jericho Hill, thank you for your time today, my friend. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, you'll be a regular. Don't worry about it. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Hotel. You know, we're always telling you we love to hear from you, the folks that take the time to watch and listen to Herd Tell, because if you don't do it, there's no point in us sitting here talking. Uh, so somebody who rather remain nameless uh, wanted to share this with us, send it in to us. It's from McSweeney's. It's a written by a guy named Eli Grober. It's called Here's How Time Works Now, and it's pretty clever. We thought we'd share it with you here on Herd Tell since it was sent in uh, here at Time. We've made a few changes, and you may be experiencing that we think you should know about. Please see below. This is from McSweeney's now, kind of a little tongue-in-cheek. A minute. A minute used to be 60 seconds long. We thought we could spice this up. A minute can now be either one hour or it can take 3.5 seconds. We hope you enjoy this new feature, which brings us to a day. You may remember that a day used to take place over the course of 24 hours. Well, we felt this was too much. A day is now over the moment you first ask yourself, what time is it? It does not matter what time it actually is when you do this. As soon as you ask or think, what time is it for the first time of that day, even if it's still 10 in the morning, it'll suddenly be eight o'clock at night. Does that make sense? I hope so, because that brings us to a week. A week was once measured over the course of seven days. Our testing showed that this has been way too short for way too long. So we made a big adjustment. A work week now takes an entire year. From Monday to Friday, you will feel like it's been and you will actually age an entire year. This is non-negotiable, which brings us to the weekend, and a weekend just doesn't exist anymore. You will go to sleep on Friday, and you will wake up on Monday with a vague memory that you may have watched an entire TV show every episode every season sometime in the last 48 hours, which brings us to a month. Now, let's talk about months. Months used to be pretty inconsistent. Some months were 30 days, some were 31, and one was 28 or 29. This seems too confusing, so now they're all just four days long across the board. That's right. Every month now takes four days. You'll get to the end of the month and think, wow, that felt like it was only four days, which used to be only one day shy of a week, but it's now just one ninetieth of a week because a week is a year and a month is four days and you'll be right. Now, I bet you're wondering what a year is after all this. So, well, I hate to say it, 
but we're all wondering what a year is. The guy who was in charge of readjusting a year just quit, and he won't talk to any of us, so your guess is as good as mine, but I think it's going to be a pretty long time. That's from McSweeney's, a guy named Eli Grober. Here's how time works now. You can find that a little bit whimsical. It was sent in by a listener uh, out in California. We sure appreciate that. If you want to engage with the show, you got something you want to send us, uh, questions, comments, epistles, whatever you got, send it to us at hurttellshow at gmail.com, at hurttellshow on the Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Also, my own social media at fourth of her, at four for the fire. You can find me on there. Love to hear from you. Love to engage with you. Uh, be nice. Keep your bearing. Might even put it on the show like we just did with this article from McSweeney's. And we'll do more Herd Tell right after this. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. We always try to end on a happy note or a good note or something a little more uplifting with all the heavy topics we have to talk about on Herd Tell. And here's a good one involving the GOAT, the greatest quarterback of all time, Tom Brady of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You may remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, he met a cancer survivor, a young boy who had brain cancer uh, and shared a moment with him after the game in the stands. Well, there's a bit of an update. Uh, Tom Brady uh, reached out to him just ahead of his wild card matchup with the Eagles this past weekend, which Tampa Bay ended up winning. Uh, Buccaneers quarterback Tom Brady, this is from sportsillustrated.com, by the way. Tom Brady gave a special gift to a special fan via a video message. The two had some history together after they were connected through tragedy. Quote, you have inspired so many people, including myself and millions of others, Brady said. The NFL and the Bucks look forward to sending deserving fans to the Super Bowl each year and fans that have incredible stories like the one you've had. I worked with both the Bucks and the NFL to get you and your family's Super Bowl tickets this year in L.A. We certainly hope to be there, but you know that you're going to be there. Uh, Noah Reeb, the 10-year-old who survived brain cancer, is a massive Tom Brady fan, and when he was first diagnosed with the disease, his parents were able to reach the Tampa Bay quarterback to set up an initial gift. Brady had recorded a message for Reeb showing his support and wishing him all the best. Later in the year, he was determined to be cancer-free, and Reeb was able to attend a Buccaneers game and held a sign that read, Tom Brady helped me beat brain cancer, and the two were seen embracing towards the end of a blowout win over the Bears in October. That's the viral moment that a lot of us watched. I remember seeing that in a game. He went over and shared a moment with the boy. It was a cool thing. Uh, Reeb stamped his ticket to the Super Bowl in Los Angeles, where he'll surely hope to see Brady and company, but for that to happen, uh, Tom's got some work to do yet. They did beat the Eagles in their first round. Uh, we'll see what they can do against the Los Angeles Rams next weekend. But we do know that this young man, this brave young man that has now beaten brain cancer, will be there. Good for Tom Brady and the NFL and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for making that happen for him and his family. A uh, little lighthearted note to end the day with, because that'll do it for her tell for us today. Um, however you're watching or listening, we sure appreciate it. Make sure you continue to subscribe. Uh, if you subscribe on YouTube, you can also still subscribe on the podcast platforms, have us multiple different ways to listen. We sure appreciate it. However, you're taking in her tell. If you really want to do us a favor, take an extra minute, take an extra click. That's all it costs to share us on your social media. We sure appreciate it. Uh, it's a big deal for us. Uh, word of mouth 
is the number one driver of growth for this program. And we've had week over week growth because of you and you sharing us and you taking the time to not only watch and listen, but to let people know our little program is worth checking out. And we sure appreciate that. Um, we have more things coming up for you. We are constantly working on more guests. Uh, just this week, we've already had folks from Elections Daily. We had Jericho here, our friend from Ordinary Times. Today, uh, our continuing partnership with Young Voices, uh, more of those folks on there. And we're expanding our reach. We're reaching out constantly. We want people from across the spectrum, politically and culturally. We want people from all kinds of different point of views. Uh, we want them all on here. We're going to listen to them. We're going to talk to them. We're going to hear out their point of views, and we're going to discuss it. This is the non-caterwauling show, and that means listening to all kinds of different people because that's how we all grow and learn together. So wherever you and yours are, we hope you're well. We hope you're well-fed. And until we see you again tomorrow on Herd Tell, y'all take care. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.